Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 today. As I read through what we're going to be studying today, Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48, um, this is the question that kept coming to my mind, that the Lord brought to my mind as I prayed through this and, and considered what, what do we do, how do we talk about this passage, it's this, um, what difference does your faith really make in your life? I mean, what genuine, true, real difference, what what is different about you? What changes from you or in you because of the fact that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, if you compared your life to the life of your lost neighbor, would there be a noticeable difference? Would there be anything that people would pick up on and say, there is something different about you than there is about this person, and it's because of their faith in Jesus. It's because they claim the name of Jesus. If you were to examine how you go about your life you have, you go about your job as a banker, as a nurse, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a teacher, as a mechanic, as a plumber, or whatever, would there be any difference in the way that you do your work if it was compared to the way that a lost person did their work? I mean, what about the way that you live out your life as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a grandparent, as a sibling? Is there any difference, any change in you because of the name of Jesus? I feel like that seems to be the question that Jesus is trying to get us to at the end of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. What, what I believe is the most difficult section of the Sermon on the Mount that we've come to so far. Um, the hardest to deal with. But before Jesus gets to that question... Of, of faith and the difference of faith, he, he starts by discussing how do we respond to those who would do evil to us, to those who we would call our enemies. And I want us to pause and to think about that little word first and get a picture in our mind of who is our enemy. Now, unless you're a kid who likes to play army or likes to play cops and robbers, you probably don't use that word enemy to describe many people in your life, do you? You don't go around saying, that person's my enemy. But it seems a little harsh, you know? It seems a little too hard for us. We like to think of ourselves as a little bit more refined than that. But the reality is, the truth is, we all have enemies. That word enemy might refer in our lives to maybe our political enemies. You know, we don't like to call it that, but I would guarantee that the people on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News would like us to call them that if they fall on the other side of the red-blue political line. We might think of enemies as religious enemies. Uh, those who follow a different faith, and many of those who follow a different faith would like to wipe us off the face of the earth. We would, might, would consider them our enemies. We might consider our enemy that neighbor who keeps you up at night, like the guy who was test driving his car all night around my house last night, and he was moving up in the enemy scale pretty quickly. <laughs> Maybe it's that person you're competing with for business or for the promotion at work. Maybe it's those people that live their lives based on a different set of values, a different set of beliefs, a different set of truths. For conservatives, maybe that's the progressives who want to erase morality. And for the progressives, it's the conservatives who they feel like are holding on to outdated, archaic beliefs. Maybe it's someone who's done you harm in the past. Maybe it's an ex-spouse, a former friend 
Some may even label enemies based on race, based on nationality, based on generation. But I think we could all agree on a basic definition of what an enemy is. It's someone whose will and desire goes against yours. Someone who wants something different than what you want. Someone who's cost you something. Someone who's caused you pain. Someone who's prevented your happiness in some way. And let's be honest, what does the average person want for their enemy? They either want A, for them to go away, right? Get out of my life. Or B, they want revenge. You say, I want them to get what they deserve, get what's coming to them. And I know we want to always think that we always take the high road, that we always do the nice thing, the right thing. But let's be honest, how many times have you ever wished ill will upon someone because of some harm they've done to you? How many times have you ever stopped and thought, I just hope they get it because of what they've done to you? We don't want to say it out loud, but I believe it can be true. It's kind of like this letter I saw from one neighbor to another. It said this. It said, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six difficult years. When you borrowed my mower, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted music. When I hoped to go to bed early, you threw big parties. When your dog dug up my wife's flower bed, you laughed. I could go on, but I certainly don't want to hold grudges. So I'm writing you this letter and sending it via the United States Postal Service to tell you that your house is on fire. <laughs> Signed, Bob. <laughs> you know, that, that's... So what do we do? How do we treat our enemies? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, and let's see what Jesus says. He starts with this. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, that's the foundation of all justice in our world. That little phrase is not just found in the Old Testament. It's actually found in all types of cultures. Um, one you might have heard of would be the Code of Hammurabi. It's an ancient law code. Um, and that phrase may seem harsh. It may even seem savage. But the truth is our own law code is built on that idea that a criminal should be punished for their crime. An eye for an eye. But that little phrase also teaches that the punishment must match the crime. In other words, it's an eye for an eye, not a life for an eye. You know, when God gave that, that, that command in the Old Testament of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, He was doing so partially to prevent the Israelites from falling into the trap of ever-escalating forms of revenge. You do something to me, I'm going to do something worse to you, and then you're going to do something worse back to me. But look what Jesus said in, in verse 39. He said, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Do not resist the one who is evil? Does that mean I'm not supposed to do anything back to someone? I'm not supposed to, to, to try to stop them? I shouldn't resist them? If someone robs me, I should just let it happen? If someone wants to kill my family, I'm just supposed to let it happen? What is Jesus trying to tell us here? Now, some would take this to mean that Jesus is saying that we ought to be pacifists, that we ought to do nothing, we ought to, we ought to never defend ourselves, that we that we should just throw out the justice system, get rid of police officers, get rid of the military. But I don't think that's the case, and I believe we can know it's not the case if we were to look elsewhere in Scripture, because you remember, Scripture always agrees with Scripture. And if we were to go to Romans chapter 13, which we won't do for the sake of time now, we would find there that it says that God ordained governments, right? And He did so partially so that they could therefore punish those who do evil. 
And so this is definitely not a command to do away with the courts, to do away with police officers. This is not a command just to let evil people walk all over you and abuse you constantly and never do anything about it. That would lead to absolute anarchy. But if that's not the case, then what does Jesus mean? Well, let's look at the examples he gives us. In the second half of verse 39, he he talks about turning the other cheek. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what's he referring to here? He is not referring to a violent attack. He's not referring to someone trying to beat someone else up. He's referring to an insulting slap. I mean, think about this. Bart, stand up real quick. Can I slap you? No, no. Okay. If, if, okay. If it, says, it says a slap on the right cheek. Now, what is the dominant hand of most people in this world? Right-handed. Now, if I was going to hit Bart on the right cheek, what do I have to do? I have to backhand him. In that, in Jewish society, thank you, Bart, for letting me slap you on the cheek. Um, in Jewish society, a backhanded slap to the right cheek was considered twice as insulting. In fact, you could even take someone to court for doing so. If you felt like they did so and it was unjustified, you could actually take them to court and say they insulted me in public. But here Christ says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And so I think he's calling on us to give up our right, especially our right to hurt others for hurting us. He says, turn the other cheek rather than punching him in the face. I heard a story about some a family that had a bunch of boys in their house, and those boys were rambunctious, and it's not my family. <laughs> but, uh, and, and they would come to church, and they were kind of rambunctious. But one particular Sunday, the pastor got their attention because he began to preach on this passage of turn the other cheek. And that pastor stressed that no matter what someone does to us, we should never try to get even. The kids just listened real intently, and they went home. But that afternoon, it didn't take very long before the youngest boy came crying to his mom And between sobs, he told his mom how he had kicked his big brother, but his big brother kicked him back. And his his mom said, well, son, I'm sorry that you got hurt, but you can't go around kicking people. And the little boy tearfully looked at his mom and replied and said, but the preacher said he's not supposed to hit me back. (laughs) You know, rather than using that playground method of hurting you because you've hurt me, Christ commands us to love differently, to forgive in real ways, to put our forgiveness into action, to take our focus off of our own condition and instead consider the condition of the other person, consider the heart of the other person. He goes on, verse 40, he gives us another example. He says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And so he's given an example of here of someone actually taking you to court and suing you for the shirt off your back, taking everything from you, And even, he says here, if someone sues you for your tunic, which would be like your shirt, he said, give them your cloak, your coat as well. Now, in Israelite society, that was only allowed for 24 hours. If you sued someone and you got a hold of their coat, you had to give it back to them by the next day because it was dangerous for them to be in that time period. They didn't have heat and air systems. And at night, it got very cold, and they would need that coat to prevent themselves from freezing. But Jesus says here, don't hang on to your stuff so closely. But instead, turn loose and see how God could use your actions to change hearts. Then he goes on verse 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Now, what he's talking about here is the practice that the Roman soldiers used. They had the permission by law in Roman society to, uh, to force people to, to carry their packs, but they could only do so for one mile at a time. And so what those Roman soldiers would do is they would grab somebody. They would say, you got to carry my gear for a mile. They would march for a mile. One mile would run out. They would pass that off to someone else. They would go grab another citizen, say, you got to carry my stuff for a mile, over and over and over again. Well, the Jews hated it. And they hated it because it reminded them of their servitude to the Romans. They reminded them that they had been conquered by the Romans. And so it was, it was perfectly reasonable in their minds for that Jewish man to only obey out of obligation. And for every single step during that mile for him to hate and despise that Roman soldier. Because that Roman soldier reminded him that he wasn't in control of his own life. But Christ says, drop the hate and lovingly carry the load for twice as long. You think that could change someone's attitude? You think that could change someone's heart? And then he says something else in verse 42. He gives us another example. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, I don't think Jesus is giving us here a command to give to every single open hand. I mean, you could see how if that were the case... Um, and every single time someone came up and begged from you, you just constantly gave, 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 gave without ever thinking about it, you would wind up broke pretty quickly, right? Very quickly. And, and also, I think there's something to be said about that warning, you know, not to give a drunk a drink, right? But at the same time, aren't we tempted to hold on a little more tightly than we should? Aren't we tempted to say no to the beggar more often than we ever say yes? And all the while, we justify it with plenty of logic. Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to give us a set of mechanical rules here, like some kind of new law. I don't think he's trying to force us um, to do these things. But I do think he's trying to push us to reconsider how we treat those who don't treat us kindly. I don't think he's trying to tell us that we need to throw out the courts and all that kind of thing. I think he's talking about specifically one-on-one situations, and this is what I think he's after. I think he's trying to say, don't worry so much about your rights when it comes to dealing with others one-on-one. Instead, concern yourself with doing what is right in God's eyes. Forgive even when someone insults you. Show kindness even when someone would take advantage of you. Serve even when that person would refuse to serve you. Give even when it hurts. I mean, let's be honest, for the average person, when we're done wrong, what do we want to do in return? We want to return wrong, right? Do unto others as they have done to you, correct? You know, give them, my, give them what they deserve. Settle the score. But Christ is telling us here to give up our rights to hurt others for hurting us. In essence, he's inviting us to follow the pattern he took on the cross, the example that he set on the cross. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. This is what Peter wrote. He said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Or think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. It's going to be on the screen as well. He says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now Paul isn't saying that vengeance is wrong here, is he? No, he's he's not saying that the evil won't get what they deserve. He's just saying don't concern about being the one to dish it out. He's saying, vengeance is going to happen, but let God take care of it. And you don't worry about it. Instead, live peaceably with all. Both Paul and Peter here come back to that same point. Just trust the Lord to work things out when you've been wrong. Don't take it into your hands. Now, I know good and well, someone in here is probably thinking this, but if I live that way, Jeff, people are going to take advantage of me. I mean, only the strong survive in this world, and I just got to be tough, and I got to i got to make sure that no one takes advantage of me and no one does me wrong, you know, and so I can't live like that. Well, you know, someone might take advantage of you, yeah, but let's remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Look back there real quickly. In verse 5, what did he say? Blessed are the tough. Blessed are the ones who take care of themselves. God helps those who help themselves. no. Blessed are the meek, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We studied this passage a couple months ago, and if you remember from that, I don't know if you will, you probably don't, um, but we learned there that meekness is not weakness, it is strength under control. I mean, because honestly, what takes more strength? Does it take more strength to react when you've been wronged by doing wrong, By, by giving them back what they gave you? By, by, by doing harm to them because they harmed you? Or does it take more strength to control yourself in the name of Christ and to love instead of hate? I think that's where the strength comes in. But here's the deal. Christ isn't just after our reaction. He's not just telling us to tolerate those people who do evil, but actually to love them. It was the church father, Augustine, who said this, Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. And I think that is true. So how do we move beyond toleration to service? How do we move beyond refusing to seek revenge to actually wanting to do good? Let's look at verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the Jews saw in that command to love their neighbor permission to love only their Jewish neighbor. Jesus gave that whole Good Samaritan parable for that very sake, right? Remember, there was a man that asked him, you know, what are the the great commandments? Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the guy says, well, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus jumps into telling the story of the, good, of the Good Samaritan to try to make that point of saying, who is your neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. And so Jesus says here, don't, don't hate your enemies, instead love them. But why would he do that? He gives us some reasons. He starts in verse 44 by telling us that our love imitates God's love. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
I mean, if, if you're a parent, you've seen this before. You know what I'm about to talk about. You know, you have those moments in parenthood um, where you watch your child do what you have done. You hear them say something that you have said. And sometimes in those moments, it's a very proud moment, right? You sit back and you think, I taught them that. And then sometimes in those moments, you think, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that they just repeated what I said, right? And it can be a moment of terror. I think I've told this story before, but I remember one time we were out of town. We went, went to a, on a family vacation, and we were driving around trying to look for a place to go eat. And so I, I put in Google, closest McDonald's. And it spits out the directions as we're driving there. I noticed that we're kind of going through a, a, a you know, not-so-nice part of town. There's a bunch of boarded-up windows and graffiti on the walls. And, and I, I, told my, I told Kim, I said, this place looks kind of rough. I don't know if we want to stop here. Uh, and then we pull up to the McDonald's, and the McDonald's was brand new, so we thought, okay, well, we'll just give it a try. And we walk in the door, and one of my boys starts saying, Dad, this doesn't look rough at all. Dad, why did you say this is rough? This isn't rough. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, they're about to spit in our food, you know. <laughs> or I think about a time when I was a little kid, and, um, and I, was, uh, I was doing so I don't even know how I did it, but I got a black eye. I, I think I... I don't know, I think I fell out of my bed or something like that. It was something dumb, and, and I wound up with a black eye, and I was embarrassed about it. And so my dad just jokingly told me, he said, well, son, when you go to school and people ask you about your black eye, just, just tell them you got in a fight with the cat. And if you think that's bad, you ought to see the cat. And so I did. And so I went to school, and my teacher asked me about it, and I told her that, and, and she felt really bad about it. And then she asked my parents about the cat when they came to <laughs> came to, you know, to parents' night out and stuff, and, uh, and my dad's, like, had to try to explain to him, we don't have a cat, you know, I don't, <laughs> you know, when we love our enemies, Jesus says here, we're imitating our Father in heaven. He said, you'll be sons of your Father. It's not that that makes you a son, it's that it reflects the fact that you are a son of God when you show that kind of love. I read somewhere one time that said this, it said to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human, but to return good for evil is divine. But there's another reason found in verse 45, second half of verse 45, Jesus tells us that, that, that part of our motivation is God's common grace. He says, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, now think about the logic of that statement. Does, does God keep the rain from falling on, the, on your lost neighbor's house? No. Does God keep the sun from shining on their house? No. In God's common grace, he shows a certain amount of love to every single person he's created, whether that person loves him back or not. And so Jesus is saying here, because of God's common grace of love, we ought to do the same. That we don't love that person because of what they've done to us. We love them simply because God made them. And then he gives us one more reason, verse 46. He's, and it's this, it's because we're called to more. Verse 46, he said, but for... If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so here's the question. What's the more in your life and love? What more are you doing? If all you do is exactly what a lost person does, 
then what difference has your salvation made? If your life imitates the world more than it imitates Christ, then what impact, what influence has Christ and His Holy Spirit had on you? Jesus didn't come to die and purchase your salvation just so that we can continue to live like the world. He bought us and He calls us to live a life of more. A life of more love, a life of more grace, a life of more forgiveness, a life of more compassion. And let's just remember this. If we think that it's impossible to do so, if you say, I just can't love those people. I just can't bring myself to feel that way. He's not calling us to a family love. He's not calling us to a brotherly love. He's not calling us to a romantic love. He's calling us to an agape love. A determined, sacrificial, intentional, deliberate love. The same love that God chose to show us, even when we most definitely didn't deserve it. He's calling us to choose to give other people. And so here's the key to it all. Don't wait for the feeling, just act in love. It was C.S. Lewis that said it like this. He said, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And I believe in the process, God will change your heart and very well through your love might change the heart of your enemy. I read a story from a book by Max Ocato one time. It's a book called The Applause of Heaven. And in that book, he tells a story about this big, burly, muscly guy named, named Daniel. And at some point in his life, Daniel was swindled out of a bunch of money by his own brother. And he vowed at that moment that if he ever saw his brother again, he's going to strangle the life out of him. He's going to give him what he deserved. Well, it was a few months after that that Daniel came to receive Christ. He prayed to receive Christ. His life was changed, but he kept holding on to that anger. He kept holding on to that, that thought that he just could not forgive his brother. Well, inevitably, one day that moment happened where he finally came across his brother in public. And this is how he described it in the book. Daniel said this. He said, I saw him, but he didn't see me. I felt my fist clench and my face get hot. My initial impulse was to grab him around his, his throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into his face, my anger began to melt. For as I saw him, I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes. I saw my father's look. I saw my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. That brother found himself wrapped up in Daniel's arms, but it wasn't in anger. Instead, this time it was in love. And as the story goes, those two brothers stood weeping in the middle of a crowd, a sea of people in public, as they each forgave each other. And I think it's worth repeating what he said there. He said, when I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy became my brother. You know, the truth is, regardless of what people do to us, when we look at them, we ought not to see their evil. Instead, we ought to see a God in heaven who created them in His image. And we are called to love them just as we love our God in heaven. Would you pray with me? As we come to this time of invitation this morning, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's the more to your love? Does your life look any different than the lost world around you? 
is there evidence in the way that you treat other people, especially those people who don't treat you so well, that Jesus has changed your life? This morning, you might need to do some confession. Lay it before the Lord and say, God, I need you to change my heart. Maybe there's someone on your mind right now that is a person that needs your forgiveness. A person who you have most definitely labeled as an enemy. Who you resent, who you hate. That Jesus is telling you right now, don't hate that person, love them. Love them to the Lord. Maybe today you need to confess that. And ask the Lord to forgive you for the hate that you have in your heart. And to teach you to love. You know, Jesus said there, he said, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And I think that's the best starting point right there is prayer. We don't naturally do any of these things. But through prayer, we can begin to pray for those. We can begin to lift those up who we have a difficult time with who, who we struggle to, to care for. And God will not only change our heart, I think he will show us how we can love that person and lead that person's heart to be changed by the Lord. Father God, I'm praying that today, if, there's be, if there be someone in this room who needs to, needs to offer forgiveness, needs to reconcile with someone, needs to turn loose of some anger, some hate, Father, today would be that day. Father, I pray that they would see that the hate that they have in their heart isn't damaging them nearly as much as it's damaging them. It's harming them. And Father, I pray that if there's someone in this room today who needs the forgiveness of Jesus, that they've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would see how much Christ loves them, how He gave Himself on a cross for them. How he rose from the grave to offer them the forgiveness of sin that only he can give. Father God, if there be someone who needs to pray to receive Christ and salvation today, that they would come forward and make that decision public. God, we pray that you would have your way in us right here, right now. In Christ's name, we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?